In a moment, Malcolm is going to come and share God's word with us from 2 Samuel 7, but we're going to read that together first. So I'm going to read it. It will be on the screen behind me as well, but if you have a Bible, you may like to open to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. The king here is King David. The king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I? O Lord God, and what is my house that you brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God. Because of your promise, and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore you are great, O Lord God, for there is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard 
with our ears. And who is like your people Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people, making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people, whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people Israel to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. And now, O Lord God, confirm forever the word that you have spoken concerning your servants and concerning his house. And do as you have spoken. And your name will be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is God over Israel, and the house of your servant David will be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, have made this revelation to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God, and your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you, O Lord God, have spoken. And with your blessing shall the house of your servant be blessed forever. Thanks, Paul, for uh, reading uh, from God's Word. And it's a great privilege to be with you uh, this morning. Uh, We worked out, it was 30 years ago that we first came to Whittlesea. And we lived in the, the manse there. It was very different then. We lived there before we went out to, uh, to Latvia. And as we've come back uh, from Latvia this year, people have often asked me, is there a need to send missionaries anymore? And my answer to that is, yes, of course there is, uh, because people need to know about God. God is worthy to be known and, and uh, praised by people from all over the world, every nation, tribe, and tongue. And um, the best people to talk about God to others are those who know him best, people like you. And that's why I wanted this uh, passage read from 2 Samuel chapter 7, because in that passage we learn one thing about God that is so important for us to understand. It's uh, essential for any Christian to know or anyone to know about, actually. And without knowing this truth, you will never go with joy to tell other people about Jesus Christ. You'll never go to other nations to speak of this great God. So what is that thing you're asking? What is the thing in this passage that everyone ought to know about? I'm glad you asked that because that's what I'm going to talk about. But turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and first of all you see there as Paul said King David is sitting in his palace. He's at home there and an idea comes to his mind. He's thinking I have a very nice house but what about God? If you remember the the tabernacle before, where God dwelt, symbolically, of course, he's everywhere. But that had fallen into disrepair. And David is thinking, you know, I've got a very nice house. God ought to have a nice house. I will build a house for God. And Nathan, who is the prophet there, 
thinks that's a great idea. I mean, if you're a pastor or a leader of a church and someone comes to you asking they want to do something, you say, yes, of course. And Nathan says, that's a brilliant idea. But then he goes home and Nathan sleeps. And in that, as he's there, uh, God speaks to him. And he says, go back to David and tell him he is not to build a house for me. Look at uh, verses um, 5 to 7. And why does God say to David, don't build a house for me? It's because of this very important truth that I want you all to grasp this morning. Look at verses 8 to 11, what God says. He says, go to my servant David and say, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Do you see what God is saying? God is saying, I did this, I did this, I, 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 I took you, David, I made your name great, I cut off all your enemies from you. This is the truth I want us all to understand this morning. We don't do anything for God. We always, only, ever respond to what God has first done for us. No, David, you will not build a house for me, but I am going to build a house for you. Now you might think, well, hold on a minute. David's already got the house, a very nice house, actually. Why is God going to build him a palace or another house? Well, he's not using that word in the same way as David was using. He's talking about I'm going to build a house, a family line, a dynasty for you. You know, just as King Charles is of the dynasty of Windsor, he's part of the Windsor family. He is of the line of the Windsors. God is saying to David, I am going to make a family line for you, a dynasty for you. And this is what I want you to grasp this morning. If you're going to know about God, this is the important thing to know about him. Know that God is always the initiator. God is always the giver. He is always the one who first acts. We always only ever receive from him, respond to him. We are always only the beneficiaries. That's the important thing to understand. Now, if you were to go back in history and you will look at many kings, many kings in the past used to build magnificent structures or temples or buildings for their gods. 
And why did they do that? They did that to get the gods on their side so that the gods would give them victory against their enemies or they would give them success in battle or they would strengthen their rule. But the God of the Bible is not like the other gods. You can't get him on your side by building him a home. You can't bribe the God of the Bible. You can't use him. Because the God of the Bible is always the initiator. He always makes the first move. He is always the first to act. No, David, you don't build a house for me to win my favour. I have already made you king. I have already defended you from all of your enemies. And I will establish your rule and your reign forever. Before you build me a house, I am already building a house for you. I start, you respond. I give, you get. I bless, you receive. And it's so important to grasp that. So important. I'm not exaggerating here, but I believe that if you take that truth, if you make that truth real in your own hearts, that characteristic of God, what God is like, then it will transform you. It will change your whole way of looking at this world, of looking at your life. It will give you wonder and joy and peace and, and confidence. It will equip you for a lifetime of ministry and service. You see, many people think that the God of the Bible is the exact opposite of how he is portrayed here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Many people think it begins with me. If I do something, then God responds to what I have done. I make the first move and then God blesses me. If I help old ladies across the road, or if I go to church, or read my Bible, or put money in the offering, God sees these things, and God is pleased with me, and God responds to my acts, and God blesses me. But that's not how the God of the Bible operates. He says, come to me with nothing. Don't come with your good deeds or your religious acts or your moral good works. Come to me with nothing and I will bless you. And that's radical. That, that separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. If you think about Hinduism, you know, it says, do your religious duty. If you're devoted to the gods, then the gods will bless you. Or take Islam, for example. Do the will of Allah, obey his commands, follow his, his uh, teachings, and then he will bless you with paradise if you do enough. Every religion says, do, 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 
do. Do, and if you do it good enough, then the God, the deity, will respond to what you have done and will bless you. But the God of the Bible, and the God of the Bible has a name, his name is Yahweh, the God of the world says, I'm not like the other gods. I'm a God of grace. You, you, you don't build me a home first, and then I respond. No, I will build a home for you. I take the initiative. I make the first move. I take the first step, and we only respond to him. And that, you might think, well, you know, Malcolm, you've chosen this obscure passage in the Old Testament just to prove this point. But I would say to you, no, no, no. This is written on every page of the Bible, what I'm saying. It's right the way through the Bible. You take the, go right back to the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible, and you have, you know, about creation. And have you ever noticed it said it was there was evening and then there was morning? the first day, and then the second day, evening, morning. And you think, like, that's a bit strange, because we talk about morning and then evening. That's a day, but the Bible talks about evening and then morning. And what's that saying to us? It's reminding us that when we get up in the morning, God's day has already begun. He's already been at work. And when we go out to work, he's already worked for us to enable us to work. We only respond to what he has already done for us. Or you take, read on a little bit more in the book of Genesis and you come to the story of, you know, the Tower of Babel and what did they want to do? They wanted to make their name great. We make our name great. We climb up to God. And God comes down and crushes that. But the very next chapter, that's Genesis 11, Genesis chapter 12, what do we find? God goes looking for a man who has no thoughts of God at all. In fact, he's worshipping other gods, a man called Abraham. And he goes to him and he says, I will make your name great amongst the nations. I will bless you and I will make you a blessing to the whole world. And you go to the next book, in the book of Exodus, and you see that, you know, God gives his people the Ten Commandments. And then you say, ah, there you are, you see. God gives the law. And he says, if you obey the law, then he will bless you. And I say, no, 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 you've forgotten the first part of the story. Where were his people? They were enslaved in Egypt. And God rescued them. He sent them Moses. And he rescued them from Pharaoh. And he rescued them from death. And he brought them out of that place. And then he brings to them their law so that they can respond to what he has already done. He always takes the initiative. He always makes the first move. We are always only receivers. And that order is vitally important. We know it in our own lives if we're Christians here this morning. Before we were born, he knew us. He knit us together in his mother's womb, in our mother's womb. From all eternity, he knew us and he loved us. And when we were in our sin and in our 
trespasses, in the darkness and our guilt, what did he do? He rescued us. It wasn't we who did that. If there had been some kind of medicine that would wipe away our sin and our guilt and our shame, we wouldn't even be able to reach out and take that medicine because we were dead in our sins and trespasses. But he, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gave us life, spiritual life. And he gave us faith and he gave us repentance and he turned us around and he showed us the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ and he adopted us into his family and he made us his children. He did all of that. It began with him, not with us. And if you change that order, then you're back into the darkness of religion where there is no hope, no peace, no joy. God promises to build for David a house. And if you look at verses 12 and 13, it says that even David's death is not going to bring an end to what God is doing. That he will build that house, that family, that dynasty, that kingdom that will never, ever end. In verses 14 and 15, he says that even sin will not stop God from fulfilling his promises to David. God is building there on the promises that he first gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And you know the story at this time of year when Joseph and Mary are going to where? To Bethlehem to be registered. Why? Because of of the line, the family of David. And yes, the baby that was born at Christmas time is that promised Davidic king, Jesus Christ, who overcame sin and death by his own death on the cross and then rising again on the third day. Every religion says, do, 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 and you will be blessed. And Christianity says, no, God has done for you everything in Jesus Christ. He's lived the life that you've not lived. He died the death that you deserve. And if you change your thinking about him and yourself and this world and you come and you stop your doing, stop your doing and turn simply with open arms and empty arms to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will receive you. And that's grace. That's grace. Now, I'm very conscious the time is running away, but three things, I'll see if I can do it in five minutes or six maybe. Three things just from this, I mean, that goes on because uh, verse 18, if you look at verse 18, how does David respond to this? Firstly, he responds with humbleness, humbleness. He's amazed. Why, God, would you do this for me? He's full of gratitude. God has been so good to him. And you know, every one of you here this morning, God has been good to you. He's given you life and health now. Every breath that you breathe, that's a gift from God. Every heartbeat is a gift from God. There's not one of you here this morning, no matter what has happened in your lives, there's not one of you here this morning that can say God has not been good to you. 
And then you think, why would he love me? Why would he send his son to be born, to live, to die for me? Why would he save me? Why would he adopt me? And the only answer to that is grace, amazing grace. And I don't want you to lose that. If you are a Christian already, I want you to hold on to that. It is amazing. It is something that you have not earned and not worked for. And you could never earn it. But you know, as Christians, we sometimes fall into that. We can often think, I'm working for the Lord and now I deserve something from him. You know the older brother in Luke 15, that's what happens to him. And you can see that when his father comes to him and he says, all these years, what, I've been serving you, I've rejoiced. No, I've been slaving for you all these years and you never gave to me. And he's angry, there's no joy in his life and he feels hard done by, by his father. And his father comes to him and he says, you know, all I have is is yours. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. And we've done nothing to deserve that. He's just given it to us and we receive it. And don't lose that amazement or that joy in what God has given to you. So this grace humbles us. But secondly, there's a confidence. In verse 19, and I don't have time to go into it, but um, you read the commentators and they've all got different opinions about how this verse should be translated. Um, I think what God is saying here is he's promising to deal with his people in a new way. He's promising to deal with his people through a king. And we see that later on. You know, when the king disobeys God, then all the people suffer. They're all sent into exile in Babylon because of Manasseh the king's sins. Now, what does that mean for you and me? It means something amazing. God now treats us on the basis of his king, Jesus. And that's good news. If God treated you on the basis of your own obedience or disobedience, it would constantly be changing, wouldn't it? You'd never know where you were with God. You know, one day you get up early and you read your Bible and you go out and you tell people about Jesus and that's a great day and you think, great, God's going to bless me now. But then there are those days when you get up and the alarm goes off and you go, ah, I'm going to stay in bed. And you don't get time to read your Bible and you don't take that opportunity to witness to someone and you feel terrible and you feel that guilt and that shame and you just want to go and hide from God. But the good news is that God doesn't do you on the basis of what you've done or not done. But he deals with you on the basis of what Christ has done, his king has done. And that's great news. It is this 33 years of Jesus' life where he never said anything wrong or did anything wrong or, 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 or felt anything wrong. He was perfect. 
perfect obedience, the righteousness of Christ. And when we have sinned and when we have not taken those opportunities and we feel that guilt, what do we do? We don't look inward. We don't look at all the wrong that we've done, but we look away from ourselves and we look up to heaven, to Jesus Christ, our perfect righteousness, our perfect obedience right there at Father's right hand. And we say, he's my hope. Not what I have done, but what he has done for me. And we take confidence from that and we repent of our sin and we get up and we go out again with new strength. There is a confidence. There's humility, amazing grace to me. There is confidence. And then lastly here, um, what does David do? Well, David doesn't stand, sit there, all the time, just saying this is amazing and wonderful. But he actually gets up. He gets up and he actually, he doesn't go and build the temple for God, but he prepares. He gets things ready for his son Solomon to build the temple. So I'm not saying to you this morning, you don't have to do anything for God. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it's the order. That's the important thing. You can't do anything for God until you know what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And so some of you here this morning need to stop. Stop your doing. And you need to sit. And you need to look at Jesus Christ. And you need to be silent. And you need to do nothing. Until you grasp what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. And you can delight in that and be amazed by all what he has done for you. But if you are rejoicing in Jesus Christ this morning, then the time is to get up now and give yourself in grateful thanks back to him. Out of the overflow of God's grace, we show grace to others. We proclaim grace to others. We live graciously amongst our neighbours, our friends, our communities, our uh, work colleagues. We don't build a house for God. He is already building his church. But those who know his grace and delight in his grace and are amazed by his grace, they're the ones that God uses in building his kingdom. So my friends, sit and be amazed. Behold him on the throne, seated on the throne. There's no one like him. Adore him, worship him. And then humbly and confidently get up and do what he has given you to do for the glory of his wonderful name. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word. We are amazed at your love for us, especially this Christmas time as we gaze at that little baby in the manger. We're amazed that Jesus Christ would come, that he would leave heaven's glory, come into this world for people like us. We don't deserve it. We certainly haven't earned it. But you're a God of grace. And I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would work in our hearts, 
that we would know and be confident of that grace in our own lives and that we would get up and that we would respond to that glorious grace with our lives, giving you our lives in service. And Lord, I do pray for anyone here this morning to whom all of this is mumbo-jumbo and they just don't get it. Lord, open their eyes. We, we needed your work in our lives to understand this in the first place. Open their eyes, Lord, I pray. Give them understanding, even this morning. Give them faith, give them repentance. Give them Jesus. We pray in his precious name. Amen.